This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Fighting Shadows, Overcoming Seven Lies That Keep Men From Becoming Fully Alive, written and narrated by Jefferson Bethke and John Tyson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Hello, friends. We are back in the building, uh, as uh, rappers in the 2000s would say, um, and we're we're back, um, back here in Lit Pulpit, and this is going to be a fun episode. What we're going to do is we're going to give a little bit of a recap um, and kind of a, a, a close to our, our Baldwin reading. I know it's been a minute, but we're, uh, we're going to do that, and we appreciate y'all sticking with us. And then we're going to turn forward toward our selection for this next uh, run of Lit Pulpit, what we're reading next, uh, a really uh, rich novel that I actually have not read. I'm really excited to dig into and Austin vouches for strongly. So we appreciate y'all sticking with us and tuning in. I'm Claude Acho and I'm here with uh, Austin Cardi and this is Lit Pulpit. We're going to kick it off with uh, James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain, which we've been kind of going through and people have been reading along with us on our Facebook group. We're going to bring it to a close today by sort of looking at the um, pieces of wisdom that we glean from this novel. Um, and then a little bit of a look at the closing scene where the protagonist, Gabriel, uh, or excuse me, rather, um, John, Gabriel's um, uh, stepson, has an encounter with the Holy Spirit, despite the toxicity of faith that he's been around. And then it becomes this question of, well, what does it mean for him to really be in the faith? Uh, so before we jump into that, um, Austin, let's talk about a couple of the big sort of pieces of wisdom that we take away from this novel. And this can also serve, I think, for listeners maybe as a um, as a way to discern if you're going to jump into this novel maybe on your own if you haven't been reading along with us. So uh, as you think on that, Austin, I'll start off with one. And one of the wisdom pieces of wisdom I think that emerges from Go Tell It on the Mountain is the um, the primacy of uh, love as an expressed reality in our faith communities and not just a dry doctrine, right? So that question of love, what does it mean to not just speak of the love of God, but to form communities where that's felt and experienced? Uh, John doesn't feel that. He feels love in the world, but not in this uh, holiness church that he's in, that he's enmeshed in. So that becomes, I think, one piece of wisdom that we really need, that Baldwin really wants us to wrestle with. When you think about some of the larger um, ideas permeating in this novel and how they can shape our living as Christians, what comes top of mind for you? I think probably the theme of how faith is not a found, settled thing, particularly a, um, a conversion experience and the, the euphoria and the uh, just overwhelm that one experiences in that moment. And I think that in some ways this book can be um, both comforting and also clarifying and in some senses even affirming for a lot of folks that grew up steeped within evangelicalism because, uh, you know, you grow up here in so many stories about dramatic conversion experiences and uh, so much emphasis gets placed on the moment of uh, encounter with with Christ and and the Holy Spirit, and for some folks, uh, and we know this as pastors, that's not something that's ever really kind of later 
uh, wondered about or, or, or questioned, or um, it, it is for some folks a, a found and settled thing. But for a lot of folks, um, faith continues to be a journey and something that uh, we continue to, to wrestle with and, and come to further and further reinterpret and reexamine and, and, and more fully understand. And I say all that so as to say that the way that this ends with this radical encounter that John has with the Holy Spirit one of the geniuses to me of, of the way Baldwin does this is you don't really know at the end exactly where this is going and what what he feels about the experience. He has that great line where he says, you know, whatever happens to me, whatever comes, I was there, you know, and um, and there's a whole lot that we could spend time just trying to interpret and, and analyze what, what we take from that line. But for me, I just think that it's such a great a great take on how. Uh, faith and an experience with the Holy Spirit um, is one of those things that uh, is like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It happens and folks are like, wow, this is amazing and wrapped up in it. And then the next thing you know, uh, that, that, that experience is gone and you're, you're back down on the mountain. And like the disciples, you know, were, were wrestling and saying, you know, to themselves, like what, what just happened? And um, I think I think we get sometimes fed within evangelicalism too simple of a story of that this is this thing that happens that uh, forever uh, can be held in a box and um, and and for folks for whom that 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 isn't their 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 life and faith experience it can it can be helpful to look at a story where you're in the the shoes of somebody who undergoes something like this, but already coming out the other side of saying, so what exactly has just happened to me? And what does this mean for me and for my life and, and for my faith? Well, John's encounter with God uh, is anything but simple. Just as you're, as, as you're mentioning, it comes here in part three of the novel, the threshing floor, um, you know, making, uh, making allusion to, uh, to, to Ruth and sort of these places of, of, of divine encounter uh, these transformational sort of spaces. And John's encounter is really complicated. You know, it, it runs for several pages. It's, um, it's, it's dense. It's hard to understand exactly what's going on. What is repeated folks will know is that if they've read along and if you haven't, this will be helpful because it'll uh, sort of prime you to engage or to think about this. If you do pick up the novel constantly, John is encountering what Baldwin describes as an, um, an ironic voice. So there's this ironic voice that's telling him to sort of get up. You're just as good as your daddy, you know, or get up. You don't want to be all, you don't want to be like all these, um, all these sort of unsophisticated black folks here at church. Right. And it, it weaves in and out and, and it seems, um, really critical of the faith, but at the same time, it's also sort of exposing, um, the toxicity of his dad's faith, Gabriel's faith. So it's re it's really complex. And I think the way people read this vision that John has um, really determines if the novel is read as sort of a uh, complete critique of Christian faith, or if it's read as being more nuanced, something that's critiquing a form of Christian faith, but not necessarily rejecting uh, the faith outright um by by virtue uh, of its of its pure nature right um in its essence um and and so this this is a really critical section I, I think what I would want people to consider is that there's one line in this section in the midst of all of this sort of uh these visions and um this sort of uh exploration of 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 black people in faith and um John's family and his father and his past is really considered that there's one line that happens where in within this vision, uh, the novel says that 
John saw the Lord uh, just for a moment. And I think this is really critical. I think this is sort of the key that unlocks something that's not complex, or that is rather not simple, uh, that is complex. And it's that whatever's happening here, John is in the context of church, and something has come upon him. And at least for a moment, the Lord was there and he saw the Lord. And I think because of that, this novel, despite all of its needed critique of the Christian faith, is suggesting um, that there is that God is still at work, that that God is still moving, that despite the toxicity of Gabriel's faith in this faith environment where people are operating like Gabriel, Gabriel sort of out of both wounds and out of sort of a cruel, um, a cruel heart, given his own choices, but given his social environment, that that God is still at work in some way. You know, I, I like to think of it as God is not going to be left without a witness. And so I think that's also another lesson that I, I a piece of wisdom I take away from this novel. The critique is strong and necessary of um sort of perversions of the faith, but at the same time, it holds space and room that that God can be at work um, all the same. That then shifts, I think, to another key key um, insight that, that the novel holds out is um, the sort of uh, dynamic of accountability. So John has this vision, and then we move into the rest of the sort of the, the revival service. Florence steps up, and now she really begins to confront uh, Gabriel, John's father, stepfather, uh, about his sort of uh, hypocrisy and hidden sin. She says, you know, I didn't read the Bible too. Like, I know what the Bible says, and you are not the righteous person you portray yourself to be. Um, and so we're seeing both John is getting, seeing a vision of the Lord just for a moment, and Gabriel uh, begins to be, pro- or excuse me, Florence begins to be prophetic towards Gabriel, right? So now two things are happening that are holding out uh, a more pure and just faith in the midst of this, all of this toxicity. So I think the novel begins to, though it's, though it's uh, complicated, it ends with two moments at least where God's truth is still being held forth. God is uh, being represented. God is even at work in two ways that, um, that begin to permeate uh, a great deal of perversion and toxicity. Um, Austin, what, what do you make of that? What do you make of, um, even the sort of ending toward the novel where there's this moment of attempted accountability toward Gabriel, who has really uh, uh, broken the hearts and lives of, of many people around him. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. I I think first that um, just I agree with you on, on your analysis of what Baldwin's ultimately saying here about religion in general, Christianity in particular, you know, and obviously you and I as pastors are predisposed to, <laughs> to, to having uh, the hope for, for a kind of a affirming and, and vindicating ending. But I still think that's to me, the, 
the the fairest and and uh, and best read. And I I love the way you just unlocked it there. I mean, for the listeners, that's ultimately you know when when scholars get down to uh, debating this book and particularly the religious uh, atmosphere of the whole book, that's that's the question: is is it is it purely a critique, an ironic uh, critique, or is there some some sense in uh, which Baldwin is is trying to affirm uh, Christian faith here, and I, yeah, I, and 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 I and I think I, yeah, I, I think just to interject real quick, I, and I think you know my reading, I recognize why I recognize why folks read this as sort of a wholesale critique of Christianity, um, and it makes sense to do that if you're really incorporating the whole corpus of Baldwin's writings and some of his later writings. I think in his life, you know, he continued to be engaged with a notion of uh, a notion of God in his own sort of making and working. But I think if you read the novel on its own terms, if you don't, you know, treat it anachronistically and sort of, uh, you know, uh, reread it through the lens of his later writings, you really engage with it as it is, uh, which I think is a valid way to read. Then I think you come to, uh, then I, I think the reading I'm advocating, we're advocating is much, is much stronger. Couldn't agree more. That's, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, within what we have in these pages right here in Baldwin writing, when Baldwin's writing, I feel like this is, um, ultimately at the end with all the critiques, uh, notwithstanding. And like you said, that are certainly valid and needed. Uh, he's at the end still trying to show that there's something um, central and, and nourishing and life-giving about faith. So just wanted to affirm that and say that I agreed. And there's this line, too, that I, I also want to read because I find it just so powerful. And I mean, I think that it, it speaks to what we're talking about. And it's also another theme that 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 I think is an important one for people of faith who are reading this book. And that's particularly what we're speaking to as, um, as we do this Lit Pulpit um, podcast says um, of of John, uh, as he's experiencing all of this, he says he was filled with a joy, a joy unspeakable, whose roots, though he would not trace them on this new day of his life, were nourished by the wellspring of a despair not yet discovered. The joy of the Lord is the strength of his people. And I think that's a powerful um, takeaway from this. I mean, obviously with John and with what Baldwin's doing here of a social critique, um, there, there's so much more going on than just uh, uh, an amorphous human individuality here. Um, but this can apply to, to all of us of, of faith because one of the central aspects of Christian faith is that uh, ho- hope which is seen is not yet, is not really hope. <laughs> that uh, one of the things that really nourishes in the wellspring of, of our faith is that um, somehow it works in this paradox and this tension uh, with with despair and hurt and sorrow and grief and all these other things. Um, and so there, there are things very particular to John and to uh, the black lived experience and all kinds of things that, you know, are, are underneath what Baldwin's saying in this sentence right here as it pertains to this book uh, that can be mapped onto um, faith in general, I think. And that's a powerful theme that we can take away that, uh, a joy unspeakable whose roots are nourished by the wellspring of a despair not yet discovered. Um, uh, so often our faith is is leading us on and strengthening us and pulling us uh, beyond despair that is is not yet discovered. And that, by the way, is going to be a great segue. Let's come back to that. I haven't even thought about it. But when we talk about uh, the moviegoer, uh, the uh, uh, the epigraph for, for the moviegoer is actually a line about... Um, 
unacknowledged despair uh, from Soren Kierkegaard that uh, is underneath everything that uh, we're going to read and talk about in the moviegoer. So that was an accidental kind of segue. Yeah, we'll come yeah, back yeah. to that. But early anyway, early um, spoiler. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So a hundred years after you asked the question, yes, I think that um, I think that that challenge of Gabriel there, the the book needs it, and it really does. Uh, the way you paired it with. Uh, John's encounter with the Lord, so too does Gabriel have an encounter with the Lord there. I mean, uh, that is, in fact, you know, from Florence, uh, a true prophetic encounter where Gabriel, for all of his posturing uh, as a person of faith, is actually then face-to-face with the Lord in the person of Gabriel, obviously mm-hmm. being the person of, of his sister. And, we'll, you know, we, it's, it's left to the imagination for what comes from that. But, but there he is really being encountered uh, uh, by God in a prophetic way. And, and I think the parallel there, you know, is, uh, David and Nathan, right. Uh, Nathan coming and, and, um, confronting prophetically after David's, uh, sin toward Uriah and Bathsheba. Um, and it's the same sort of parallel, right? Florence comes and says, Hey, I read the Bible. I know, you know, we're told to, we know it, uh, tree by its fruit. And, and, you know, John isn't the only, uh, isn't the only, uh, she says, as an only bastard, as an only sinner in your house, you know, and all these different sort of things. And, and Gabriel responds with religious platitude after religious platitude. Um, he doesn't engage, but who knows what happens, you know, sort of after that. Similarly, the novel leaves us wondering what exactly is going to happen with John. He, he says to his friend Elisha, um, you know, no matter what happens to me, what, no matter what anybody says, you know, you tell people, you remember I was here, I, I was saved. And the last line is, you know, I'm ready, I'm on my way. And He's back in the, you know, he's back in the world. They've left the all night revival service. And now it's sort of, well, we've seen what the world is. We've seen what the church is in the, in this environment. Is his faith going to withstand? We've seen what his family is. We've seen what his family history is. We've seen what America's history is toward, uh, toward, toward black folks. Is he, what's going to come of him, right? All of these things are left there. Uh, and they don't, they don't look good. It, you know, it, the trajectory is, is, is quite bleak. Um, and yet, uh, for a moment, he saw the Lord. So I, I think this is a really profound, um, profound close. And I, th- I hope as people have journeyed with us, um, you know, through through this novel, or folks that are coming back to this much later, you know, picking up this novel, I, I hope they find it enriching for their faith. I, as a pastor, I think about Gabriel all the time. Uh, I think about um, the wounds of his heart. I think about the way the novel still portrays him with mercy. I think about the way this kind of call. Uh, to accountability, this prophetic call from Florence toward Gabriel at the end of the novel is itself also an act of mercy. It's an opportunity for him to 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 change, to to turn, to repent, to do all of these things. And I think there's um, there's so much tenderness in this novel alongside its critique. And I think it it shows us a real way of how truth and love can be held together. And so I really um, really am grateful for this work um, in in that sense. So. Uh, that'll kind of close close us up with um, with Go Tell It on the Mountain, and you you already revealed what we're reading next. Walker Percy's The Movie Goer. That's what's coming up next, folks. So uh, get a copy from your library, pick one up, um, or uh, buy it where you buy books, or grab it from your shelf and start reading. And we'll kind of work through that. It's, it's not a it's not a long book, um, but it's a beloved book. Austin, can you give us a little bit on why folks should pick up the moviegoer? Um, can you can you give your best pitch there? And know that this is a little bit of a pitch to me because I've read Percy, uh, but I've not read this novel, though I've heard it is. Uh, well, uh, well acclaimed and revered. So what's your pitch on the moviegoer? 
The movie Go is a great book. It it won uh, the National Book Award in the early 60s. It's one of these books that uh, had not had a bunch of popular success when it first came out, so it shocked the world when suddenly it won the National Book Award. But then through the years, it's one of these books that just always pops back up. And um, I've always found that fascinating because even when you kind of uh, move in literary circles or talk with bookish folks and people love to talk about favorite books. The moviegoer is not one of those that gets talked about a whole lot, but then it's, it's always lurking there in the background, you know, and suddenly, um, suddenly people uh, are, are referencing it and making allusions to it. And so it's, first of all, it's just a great book to have read and, and, and have kind of um, in the, uh, in the reservoir. Uh, what's great about it, um, what, what it was signaling when it came out in the sixties and what I think makes it so ripe for reading uh, you know, a couple decades into the uh to the twenty first century, is that um, it it deals with uh themes particular to the lived experience in late modernity, and so let's not make that so academic. Let me put put that in uh, regular speak. It we 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 wrestle uh whether we know it or not with these daily questions of what am I doing all of this for? And um, why am I sprinting at such a fast pace? And what's it, what's it really all uh, coming to? And what's, what's kind of the point behind all of it? And um, this book draws us to um, uh, what, what some folks talk about a, an appreciation for everydayness uh, for, for, trying to, to kind of see the, the beauty and the purpose in, in the moment and in the mundane. Um, in the book, uh, Binks, the main character, often refers to, to, to the lived experience as the search, like the search for, for what's it all about, like what's, what's the purpose of my life, what's the purpose of, of, of being alive, what's the purpose of existence. And it's interesting because this isn't just, you know, your run-of-the-mill existential book. I mean, Percy was, you know, a, a really um, dedicated person of faith, um, and he comes at this from from a decidedly faithful perspective. Um, and so that quote that I referenced earlier, that I don't have the book in front of me, and I, I could be wrong, uh, and it's not as if I don't have a computer right in front of me that I couldn't just Google it, but... It's um it's a Soren Kierkegaard quote that talks about how um the very uh, condition of despair is that we don't know that we're actually um, experiencing despair. Yeah, it's, uh, this you got specific it? the specific character of despair is precisely this: it is unaware of being despair. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And so that is kind of a good way of encapsulating what for many is the late modern condition is that we're going so fast, we're pushing so hard um, that there can be this low grade little D despair. Um, even, even if we most significantly, if we don't know that it's there, um, this book draws our attention to how, um, that rumble, that, 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 that soft rumble is, 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 is often there and gives us, uh, an experience of one man as he's coming to terms with this and, um, and, and how he does and what, what he perceives along the way. And so I think there'll be some rich conversation that develops, uh, out of this book, 
um, for the same reason that it snuck up on so many people and won the National Book Award. I think if folks will read this with us, it can sneak up on uh, on all of us and, and become meaningful to us in that same way. Yeah, I'm excited to jump into this. Time had it in its top 100 um, English novels, I think, of the 20th century, something like that. Um, and and I think you're right. It, it it seems to be a novel that really engages and speaks to the sort of like languishing feel that we can experience in sort of everyday life where, you know, hey, on the surface, we kind of have everything we need. And, you know, we have our hobbies and our luxuries and our movies and our shows and all this sort of stuff. And, but we just f- have this kind of lethargic uh, inner life and all, everything is sort of really just off and um and everything seems incomplete and we don't know where to find uh, any kind of sense of joy or like real deep meaning, even though we may be people of faith. Right. And so I think this novel is going to speak to that um, with, with, uh, with, a, with a, a sort of, um, yeah, really prescient um, angle. And I, I read uh, Walker Percy's Love in the Ruins last year. I think it was my favorite novel that I read last year. And it was sort of um, medicine to the soul and also, you kind of absurd and also uh, really humorous. And so there's kind of really interesting mix. So I'm expecting some of the same from the moviegoer. So I encourage folks, grab a copy. Uh, we're going to jump in um, re- real quickly after you're, after you're hearing this and, and dive into the moviegoer. So uh, in the show notes, follow along with us um, on our Facebook for Lit Pulpit. Um, drop us a note there if there's anything you want us to cover as we get ready to jump into the moviegoer. And we'll, uh, we'll catch y'all uh, next time, uh, not too far off in the future as we jump into Percy's uh, debut novel. Appreciate y'all listening. Thanks.